Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. In a few seconds, I'm going to be back for the next segment of my interview with Sheer Hever about the uh, conflict in Gaza, and I should say more specifically than conflict, what has turned into what I think is a savage attack on the population of Gaza. Not to say there wasn't a terrorist attack on Israeli Jews, there was, but there is something completely out of proportion what's taking place now. And it's a very interesting quote from the Israeli ambassador to uh, the United Nations. Uh, he says that, uh, what's a proportional response to the killing of innocent uh, children and babies and so on? Well, it seems the Israelis think a proportional response is to kill Palestinian children. Uh, and, and if that's what they think, well, that's a definition of collective punishment. It's a definition of, of a war crime. Anyway, we'll be back in just a few seconds. So now joining me again to continue our conversation is Sheer Heber. Sheer is uh, living in Germany, but he grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, he uh, works with BDS in Germany. And uh, I urge you to watch the first part of the interview because we're kind of going to pick up where we left off. Uh, so Sheer, just, just to continue with what I was just saying, um, th there is, uh, to my mind at any rate, from, from I visited Israel once, uh, it's about almost 18 years ago, I guess. Uh, I mean, no, I'm sorry. I was born like 30 years ago. God, I'm getting old. Um, but the extent to which the Israeli population seems to be uh, on board with this attack on Gaza. There's a report in the Washington Post today that some of the young activists that have been involved in what they're calling a kind of democracy movement in Israel, uh, opposing the, the Bibi Netanyahu's judicial reforms, uh, opposing the far-right government in Israel, that even these young people have said, okay, we'll continue our fight with Netanyahu and the far-right after Hamas has been eradicated. And, 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 and there, it seems to be the vast majority of Israeli society is on board with what has turned into a vicious attack on Palestinian civilians. And we know 40% of Gaza are children. Uh, we know many, many of the deaths in the last uh, days have been you know, teenagers and children and babies uh, dying in incubators because hospitals have no fuel. Um, how did Israeli society get to be a place that accepts such things? Yeah, the Israeli society is at its lowest point ever, and in many ways it stopped functioning as a society. What we see here is not unity around a single idea. Uh, the the hatred and, and the violence and the desire to, to destroy Gaza, to kill everybody there, to kill the civilians there, does seem like a unifying force for many factions of society. But in fact, um, there is a disintegration into atomic elements where every group just wants to um, to lay the blame at other groups and uh, the, to, to use this moment as justification for anything. Uh, it's, it's, um, the atrocities we see in Gaza are um, reaching the level of genocide because it's a, an intention and it's a clearly stated intention to 
destroy that population and to kill as many Palestinians as possible and to prevent Gaza from existing anymore. So it's not just uh, killing people, but it's also um, making it impossible for those who are escaping to ever come back, to drive away the survivors. Uh, they're trying to drive them now into Egypt. Uh, Egypt is not um, accepting this, of course, but uh, there is a, a think tank, an Israeli think tank, who has come up with a detailed plan on how the United States will support Israel in bribing Egypt into opening its borders and allowing Palestinians to uh, escape into the Sinai Peninsula. And this will give Israel the ability to simply wipe the whole city of Gaza off the map and, and just to, uh, prevent anyone from ever coming back. So uh, this is one plan by one faction, but every other faction has different plans. And at the same time as we're seeing this, the settlers in the West Bank are running amok and they're completely out of control. And they have killed uh, about 100 people in the West Bank since the attack on Gaza began. The Israeli military is not doing anything to stop them, to rein them in, to, to control this. In fact, in many cases, they're helping them. Now, as you know, there are um, more than 200 Israeli hostages held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And uh, every sort of reasonable person would say that uh, Israel should do everything to get them back, to negotiate with Hamas, a prisoner exchange deal. And there is negotiation happening uh, with the mediation of Qatar, but every part of the Israeli society is doing something in a different direction which undermines those negotiations. So the Israeli prison authority, which is in charge of keeping Palestinian prisoners, uh, there's now more than 10,000 political prisoners held by Israel, and they are the sort of bargaining chip with which Israel uh, hopes to barter for the release of the hostages, so hostages on both sides. Um, but, but the Israeli prisoner authority has killed two Palestinian prisoners, uh, which are affiliated with Hamas. Probably it was torture, that they were killed by torture because uh, they were trying to interrogate them to get information. Uh, one of them is uh, was was in his fifties. One of them was in his twenties. So not people who were particularly old or frail. Uh, and um, and what kind of message does this send when you're trying to negotiate a prisoner exchange and at the same time you're killing your own hostages? Uh, and and what what message does that send to Hamas? So this is the kind of of disintegration of society that we see in the news in Israel are no longer able to to even report that. And that's what, what the, the thing that I've never seen before. Because even, you know, in, in the darkest moments of, of Israel's history, uh, and uh, I'm thinking about the war of 1973, which is often compared with the situation now, uh, in the 1973 war, there were a lot of people who, th who believe that the state of Israel might be destroyed in the war, might, might lose the war. Um, but, um, but even then, there was a lot of satire. There was a lot of humor. There was some respect to the Egyptian and Syrian militaries for their prowess and their strategic uh, um, planning. Uh, and, um, and, and so there was a little bit of self-critique. There was some reflection. There was some interest how this is seen by the world and uh, how, how the international community is going to address this. You mentioned the, the Israeli ambassador to the UN. Uh, and uh, he said some other things. He said, for example, that uh, the uh, general secretary of the UN 
uh, Guterres, has to step down. And the reason that he has to step down is because he dared utter the words that the attack against Israel on October 7 did not occur in a vacuum. He dared remind people that history doesn't begin on October 7th. And there is already a reality, which, which Guterres really didn't go into much detail about, about the occupation, the apartheid, the settler colonialism, the, the ethnic cleansing. Um, he didn't list all, all those things, but he dared mention that there might be some background. That was enough for the Israelis to simply refuse to engage with him. They said uh, Guterres is not welcome to visit Israel. Uh, he's, he's dead to them. Uh, and that is just an indication of this inability to hear other voices. So it's not just to, to the outside, it's also inside. It's also inside. You have, he said another word you're not supposed to say, ceasefire. I mean, just for Guterres saying there should be at least humanitarian ceasefire, um, that's another reason he should have to, to resign. Um, the, the, the thing is, I think most of the world, uh, in fact, outside of the Biden administration, uh, almost the entire world seems to get what's wrong with this response of Israel. Um, but the Biden administration seems to some extent inexplicably gone further than they needed to. Um, and the and the and the uh, the Israeli government reminds me of uh, they don't like making ex uh, references to the Nazis, but I'm going to. Um, in 1940-41, um, I'm and what I've read, it was pretty clear to any thinking German elite that Germany was going to lose the war, but they didn't stop. And, and there was a kind of a, almost a metaphysical side to it, a fanaticism to it uh, that didn't have much to do with, with, with a kind of rationality about what was even good for the German state. Um, it has some of that feeling to it. The, the fanaticism has just taken over. Well, uh, you know, usually it's true that the Israeli society is very averse to those uh, Holocaust comparisons and to na comparisons with Nazis. Right now, you hear it 24-7. Uh, people are are basically saying, oh, the, the Hamas are Nazis, which is a complete nonsense and also a complete misunderstanding of, of the power relation between occupier and occupied. Uh, but but um, I think there are many examples like this. And, if, and, and because you spoke about the United States and why the United States goes so far, United States is the empire, not Israel. Israel is like the colony at the edge of the empire that causes the, the downfall of the whole empire because it's over-invested in one battle. And it's like the Roman Empire with Britain, uh, which, uh, which was this em empire that sucked in all the, the resources of the empire and, and caused corruption and collapse. Now, think about this Gerald Ford uh, air aircraft group, air, uh, air carrier group that Biden sent to the Red Sea which is now positioned between Yemen and Israel. So the Houthis in Yemen have apparently fired a couple of rockets towards Israel. Not many, but they were um, intercepted by the Jared Ford uh, carrier group. So Israelis were writing in, in, in a very naive way, isn't it wonderful and lucky that the, the carrier got there on time? completely misunderstanding the situation the Houthis waited for the carrier to be there because now they've they've 
uh, stuck it in place. So now one of the fleets of the United States is stuck in the Red Sea and they can't leave because if they leave, well, then, then they won't be able to intercept the next rocket. Uh, so this is how an empire gets itself, it lo loses control over the situation. Now Biden wants to bring to Congress a bill for uh, $106 billion for Ukraine and for Israel, and, and it's all more weapons and more brutality and more killing. Uh, that's not going to make the, the U.S. stronger in the region. It's only going to unify every country that is opposed to, to the United States hegemony. And we've, we're already seeing that. We're seeing that the Organization of Islamic Countries has said uh, what Israel is doing is genocide. President Lula of Brazil said it, that this is genocide. South Africa is saying this, it's genocide. So um, Turkey as well, and Turkey is important because it's a member of NATO. So really, uh, this, this whole empire is falling apart because of this. You, you, you talked about fanaticism. This is the fanaticism. It's complete, uh, um, reckless, and, in, um, and, and not intelligent or stupid support for a country which is in a state of downfall. The, the the extent to which it seems the majority, as I said, Israeli population seems to be on board with quote unquote eradicating Hamas, which means bombing the shit out of Gaza, at least so far that's what it means. And it could mean even worse if or when the ground invasion takes place. I mean, clearly it's civilians that are bearing the brunt of getting killed. They're not the ones down in the tunnels. They're the ones in the buildings getting bombed. Uh, the, the, I'll ask again, like, you know, in the United States after 9-11, there was fury about 9-11. The media was, you know, rabidly, uh, nobody wanted to talk about root causes. If you talk, if you said U.S. foreign policy had anything to do with 9-11, you would try, you know, they would try to shut you down. But still, there were significant voices of opposition to invading Afghanistan uh, there was certainly a, ma a massive uh, protest against the invasion of Iraq, even though the uh, Bush administration tried to tie uh, uh, Iraq to the 9-11 attacks and so on. Um, you don't see that in Israel. And this is a process that's been going on for decades. It didn't begin, as you say, on the 7th. I was there for a film festival, as I said, years ago. And, uh, at the, and, and then later I visited again a little more, quote unquote, recently, more like 14 years ago, maybe. And uh, I was in Ramallah and I came back and I was in Israel and I was just like in a store. And I had mentioned to the storekeeper just to see how she responded. Uh, you know, I just came from Ramallah and the, the vial that came out of this ordinary person's mouth against the Palestinians, I, I don't think I would have heard it in, in the worst racist southern United States, there would have been at least some self-censorship, even if they thought the same things. They would have been a little muted talking to a foreigner in such overt racism. And that's years ago, and it seems to me like it's gotten worse. Uh, well, I would, if, if you, we had had this conversation a month ago, I would strongly argue with you. It said, no, no, it didn't get worse. It actually got better. And, and there are other voices that you hear now uh, but now that we're having this conversation, I, I'm forced to agree with you. It has gotten much, much worse. And let me also say the comparison to 9-11 is something the Israelis repeat a lot because it does serve their own interest. Because the one thing about the attack of 9-11, it was perceived as uh, something that was uh, unprovoked, coming out of nowhere, 
the attackers came from another country, crossed uh, the ocean just to come to the United States in order to make the attack. Um, and, and of course, the, all these things are not a good description of, of what happened on October 7th. These are not people who uh, came from across the ocean. They are the, the indigenous population of Palestine. Uh, and uh, even if uh, what they did is, is inexcusable, uh, but um, it is there are a lot of people in Israel who, who would agree, and, and uh, like Ehud Barak, he said it himself, uh, the former um, prime minister and minister of defense, who said if he was a Palestinian, he would also join a terror organization. Those were his words. Uh, because, because of course, he, that, that was the level of, of empathy also with your adversary that, was, that made it possible for Israelis to be such effective colonizers and such effective occupiers. Their ability to see things from the side of Palestinians and to, uh, you know, in Israeli intelligence, learning Arabic and, and learning Ar uh, Palestinian culture and history and so on. So, yeah, some people would, would say, uh, how, how dare you go to Ramallah these, uh, um, and, and, and make various racist comments about Palestinians. But if you look at previous generations uh, and, and the, older, the older guard of the Israeli officers and, and uh, intelligence, they would uh, be very offended by such talk. They would say, no, 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 we have to know our enemy. We have to respect them and we have to understand them. All this is gone. It's now pure colonial arrogance. And because of that, they have no idea anymore. And because of that, they were also taken by complete surprise. Uh, and this is what's uh, making them even more furious. You must have heard those comparisons of, of Israelis saying uh, this was the worst uh, time for Jews since the Holocaust, which is simply not true. Uh, but if you really think what was the moment in Israel's history after the Holocaust in which um, the largest number of Jews were killed, we're back at the War of 1973. That was really a moment which was... Um, very scary for for Jews in Israel, and, and that war was in a the, the it caused a response not of rage but of fear, because people didn't know if they're going to make it through. Now the fear is gone because in order to be able to fear Palestinians, you have to respect them. So instead, you only have this rage. But but actually, you do have some fear, which is the fear of realizing how this thing looks from the side. So what I see now Israelis uh, writing letters to Jewish communities in the world and saying, how dare you say that Palestinians also have the right to live? How dare you? And, and this is coming from people who call themselves leftists, right? The people who were uh, writing about occupation and, and writing against the government. Uh, you mentioned the, the movement for democracy, but the movement for democracy was not... Uh, the, the protests against against Netanyahu was not the Israeli left. I'm talking really about people who are from the left and who who said yes, we have to to have um, to, Palestinians must have rights. And now you hear them changing their tone completely. And those who don't, those who stay by their principles that human beings are equal and Palestinians have a right to live, and killing uh, children in Gaza is no um, solution and, not, and no no uh, suitable punishment. Those people are getting arrested. That is another thing that I haven't seen, um, at least in my adult life. Now, is, is the Israeli media covering 
what's going on. Like, I, I'm kind of surprised the American media has changed its tone. You know, they were, of course, outraged about the initial Hamas attack, and so they shouldn't be. But they have switched now and seem quite outraged by what's going on in Gaza. And there's a lot more emphasis on that. But are the Israeli, is the Israeli media reflecting the severity of, what, of the attack on Gaza? Um, no, they're, they're not reflecting this. Uh, there's only one liberal newspaper in Israel, which is Haaretz. Uh, and uh, I think you've had uh, Haaretz um, journalists on, on your show as well, and, and you know. Um, this is the only newspaper which allows different opinions to be voiced. So there are also very right-wing people who, who write there, and, uh, but, uh, but also left people. And Haaretz still has once in a while an article which describes the humanitarian disaster in Gaza as if it's a force of nature, you know, <laughs> without, without mentioning that this is a war crime and without talking about the, even, you know, from a purely Israeli interest, what it means for the legal culpability of, of officers and soldiers who participate in those war crimes. Uh, but then you, you have many, many more articles which are expressing surprise at, oh, look at this betrayal by Harvard University because they dared... Uh, utter a statement uh, that that uh, spoke about both sides, or how how dare these uh, the Jews uh, from Jewish Voice for Peace betray us like this and have a demonstration against genocide, um, and and they keep getting surprised more and more without realizing that it's the whole world, how they they are com completely isolated. But uh, but Israeli television showing the images of the destruction of homes and hospitals and children and so on, are people seeing what's going on? No, no. They can read about it in the newspaper or if they have uh, access to international um, channels, they can get, watch it on international media, but they're not going to watch it on Israeli television. And they're not going to see it. Is, if they're, they're watching it on international channels. Yeah, then then they need to, to know English. A lot of Israelis can speak English, but, uh, but uh, no, they won't see it in Hebrew. Absolutely not. And the Israeli government is now moving to close the offices of Al Jazeera. And uh, they've already arrested a few Palestinian jur uh, journalists uh, for, for just reporting. And, you know, Palestinian journalists, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Palestinian journalists who have Israeli citizenship. They're Israeli citizens. They're, of course, not allowed to go into Gaza and to uh, record the, the devastation and the killings that are happening there. But they are trying at least to cover protests within Israel protests against the war. And for that, they are being arrested as well. So now, no, Israelis just simply don't have access to this information. All right, let me go back a little bigger picture. If this was a normal capitalist country, Israel, you would think it would have been more prudent to have a more South African-style solution here. In other words, incorporate the Palestinian populations of West Bank and Gaza into Israel, one person, one vote, and then dominate the politics through your money, uh, you know, corrupt Palestinians and bring a handful into the elites and manage that way. Uh, so you're not in endless war. You'll have a big source of cheap labor um, and, and do it that way instead of this endless struggle. But when I was at that film festival, and let me say, I, I, 
I went because there were supposed to be a lot of Palestinian filmmakers that were going to go, and then they pulled out in the last second, which I didn't know, but anyway. But I was told when I was there that if it wasn't for the threat, existential, quote-unquote, threat of the Palestinians, Israeli society would explode. The, the uh, differences between the secular and the uh, orthodox and, and the various other kind of fractures in Israeli society are so severe that without that Palestinian external threat, uh, there could be a kind of civil war in Israel. Um, is that true? Is that one of the reasons uh, why this never got solved in a more you know, neoliberal way? Um, well, let me stop there for now. Yeah. yeah, there is something a little bit odd of thinking of the indigenous population of the country as an external threat. If anything, the Israelis are the external threat. They're the ones. I said, I said existential, not not external. Yeah, existential. Yeah, maybe they call that external. Yeah, 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 but uh, I mean, I think it's the other way around. I think that, like many settler colonies, uh, capitalism is not the goal, but a means to an end. Uh, And uh, it's it's not. Actually, Israel started with as a social democracy. Uh, I don't know if you know this that uh, David Ben Gurion, the first prime minister, went to the Third International, held a, a picture of Stalin in the streets of Tel Aviv. And so so that's where his political upbringing comes from. I think Soviet Union is one of the first countries to ratify the existence of Israel to the United Nations. Yeah. And it was Ben-Gurion's choice to then ally with the United States instead of with Russia, with the Soviet Union. Uh, and this choice was taken by surprise by many Israelis. It wasn't clear that this is the way he's going to go. But it was... Um, so, so capitalism was not a given for that state. Of course, in order to be an ally of the United States, they have to be capitalists. That's, that much is clear. Uh, but uh, it is, of course, a kind of settler capitalism, meaning that the secret police is checking who are the owners of big capital and can disqualify certain people uh, from buying certain property. And money doesn't solve everything. And, and there's, there are certain laws and and instruments in Israel, there's this uh, fear, you know, what if the Saudis will come and buy everything and then give it to the Palestinians and there won't be a, Jew- a Jewish state anymore, um, which I'm sure the Saudis will never uh, do for, for Palestinians, but it is uh, nevertheless reason for the Israelis to to make these laws. Uh, so, yeah, but, but your question about the South African model, I remind you that the South Africa model wasn't adopted willingly by the white population. It was enforced upon them by a resistance movement that fought for many, many decades until they were able to win their freedom. And so rational voices aside, there is no way for a settler colony to simply better itself, but decide to do good. But, but there are voices in Israel from the right, even, who have actually advocated this. I, I've seen, you know, there are, there are right-wing hawkish voices that have actually promoted this as an idea, like to you know, let's get this over with by incorporating them and then dominating them. I mean, as the as the Arab popular Palestinian in, population that are citizens of Israel, they're citizens, but they're second class. There are many uh, clever caveats that are put into this. One of them, for example, when when you're thinking about uh, the the previous president uh, Ruven Rivlin. Who said, yeah, Palestinians should have Israeli citizenship and be allowed to vote, but not the ones in Gaza. And this way, we still have a Jewish majority and the Palestinians remain an oppressed minority. But the world cannot say we're an apartheid state anymore uh, because uh, Palestinians are citizens. But Gaza will continue to be an open air prison and, and will, um, 
and and the people there will not have citizenship. So yeah, that's one of those suggested caveats. He's from the right. And, and and there are also those that I would say not the hawkish right, but the very religious right that say the the state, a Jewish state is not a holy thing. The Jewish land is a holy thing, which means that um, as long as we get to live in the land in, in places like Hebron, deep in the occupied West Bank, uh, but these are holy sites to Jews, then uh, the most efficient way of doing that is to live in a in, in a state where Palestinians are also citizens. And even if the prime minister happens to be Palestinian, but we have to stay here in, at all costs. That's another argument that is made. But these voices are very weak right now. Right now, the strong voices are those who say, uh, if Palestinians are simply gone, then it doesn't matter. Uh, we, we're not an apartheid state if there are no Palestinians. Uh, and of course, that's not a realistic, not a rational thing to say. And uh, and of course, and it's also very dangerous to say that sort of thing because uh, that means that um, investors are running away. That means that uh, the strongest allies of Israel are turning it back uh, to Israel. I, I'm speaking to you from Germany, which is really trying in the ugliest way to remain committed to Israel uh, to the last drop of Jewish blood because because they they have no problem with with Jews dying for the glory of the state of Israel as long as they don't want to come in and live in Germany. Uh, but um, but I also think that at some point, German has, Germany has laws that forbid uh, state institutions from assisting in the con committing of genocide. And I don't think that German politicians who say, oh, we are all Israelis, we stand with Israel, are willing to go to prison for this. There is a moment in which they would say, well, a line has been crossed and we cannot uh, we do this anymore. And the people who have no idea about this line and don't seem to care are the Israelis. Uh, what, what I'm getting at is a little bit what we talked about last time. That it's and you just mentioned it earlier in this this discussion. Uh, that Netanyahu and the, and not only Netanyahu, but he seems to be one of the main architects. Um, wanted Hamas. Uh, they wanted this type of Islamic. Ex which has become more and more extreme uh, because it becomes a target and it becomes a distraction. And they don't want to have to negotiate uh, with the Palestinians towards any legitimate two-state solution. Uh, they certainly don't want to negotiate any more democratic kind of solution. Um, that, that, this, the, but that this is part of this uh, need to, to suppress contradictions within Israel. Like I was just saying, I, I, I take your point that democracy movement was never about democracy for Palestinians. Uh, and, and in fact, I know at last time there was a big rising of the democracy movement. There was a big argument within it, whether they, amongst a group that wanted to make democracy for Palestinians an issue, and they lost because they were, it was called a distraction and so on. But the way they've shut down now, it's just another example how this Hamas threat helps to suppress the uh, dissent within Israel and strengthen the right. So, so anyway, go on. Yeah, go on. Historical perspective. I mean, you and I remember a time that there was no Hamas and there were still, there was still occupation and apartheid at that time. And there was still resistance also at that time. And when the Israeli government said, oh, our, our problem is with Fatah because it's a socialist and democratic movement, a progressive movement, which is uh, uh, allied with the Soviet Union. So we should cultivate 
opposition groups because they are conservative and, and Islamic, they would be our allies in, in this divide and conquer uh, scheme. And those groups then developed uh, to become the Hamas movement. Not, not that I, I'm not saying that Israel created Hamas, but, but they tolerated Hamas in the beginning because of that. Uh, and then suddenly the, the world changed, the Soviet Union collapsed. Now uh, socialists are not so scary anymore. So the, the new enemy are the, uh, the Islamic groups. Yeah, but it was also, also Fatah in, in those day, earlier days were also involved in a certain amount of armed struggle. There was a certain amount of terrorist threat, tactics, which they later get, you know, decided for themselves it was counterproductive, became more and more open to a legitimate uh, negotiation. And then the Israelis weren't interested in that kind of negotiation and preferred uh, a, a Hamas type. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it is true that um, this idea of, of an existential threat has been used mainly by Netanyahu more than any other politician as a unifying force, as a way to, to gather popular support. Uh, so it, the Israeli society is indeed severely divided. These divisions only became deeper and deeper over time. And yes, Netanyahu always said, um, we, we have to protect ourselves and, and uh, we have to sacrifice certain freedoms and uh, standard of living and things like that in the name of security and so on. Uh, that's why he he loves talking about Iran because um, because Israelis learned to to uh, view Palestinians with contempt and didn't see them as a, as a, enough of a threat. That's why Netanyahu said, "Oh, we need a bigger enemy. We need somebody who can really scare people." So he started this whole campaign about Iran, uh, but um, now <laughs> they don't need Iran anymore because Palestinians have shown that they uh, actually. Uh, understand how the Israeli military functions. Well, they're tying it together to Iran, so we'll see. They they may not have given up on proof trying to start something with Iran here as well. Um, I saw I saw a talk by Gideon Levy, who was one of the m most progressive writers on Haaretz, and uh, and he was speaking in Washington a few years ago, and he said that he personally had given up on Israeli society. He just did not see any force with an, any kind of strength to deal with this type of riot. I don't know if he used the word rising fascism. I, he might have, but uh, but something akin to that. He said only the United States could intervene and needs to intervene. Otherwise, if it's left just up to Israel, it's just going to get worse. Is he right? I mean, is it really, I mean, do the Americans have to really, American people particularly, because uh, the Biden administration seems to feel no pressure at this moment. Well, first of all, let me ask you this. Can you give me an historical example of a colonial empire, an occupying force that has decided from inside to heal itself? Yes. Yes, I can. I can. Yes, Britain. Uh, Britain reached the conclusion about its, uh, certainly Canada and some of its other colonies, uh, that it was way too expensive to directly occupy. And it was way better to use neo-colonial, uh, recruit local elites and rule through them, which is kind of what Israel's to some extent tried to do with the PA in the West Bank, I guess you could say. Yeah, Britain Britain uh, divested itself of the Commonwealth in terms of direct colonization in India. Uh, in fact, the, the, the British, I think it was Lord Durham talking about Canada, but it applied to India as well. 
They, they called direct colonialization a millstone around our neck. It's just way more expensive. And you can see from the American empire, it's very rare the Americans, especially in modern times, directly try to occupy somewhere. They, they rule through uh, local elites on the whole. Yeah, ruling through local elites, absolutely. And I would say that the Commonwealth is exactly that. I mean, it's uh, if it's Canada or Australia, it's it's all uh, colonies where where the white elite, uh, the European elite, which is closely allied with the with Great Britain through trade and so on, was allowed to. Well, that now it's now it's America and, and the the indigenous population had no say in this, um, and uh, so so that's I don't think that is a counterexample. Uh, but uh, and and in fact, uh, if you, if you're saying this is something that Israel was trying to do with the West Bank, um, well, that there was a time, of course, so, uh, where where the Israelis thought that the Palestinians would gladly accept Jewish white uh, colonizers in the West Bank and also in Gaza, which would become like plantation owners and would ma give, uh, manage the population and, and and that would increase their standard of living. And Palestinians should be grateful for this uh, benevolent uh, European rule that has been enforced upon them. Uh, they've been uh, disinvested of those illusions very quickly. And so they thought we need um, uh, elites from within the Palestinian society, um, which uh, will become our subcontractors. And that's the Palestinian Authority in, in a large uh, extent. Uh, but that's also collapsing now. It's also completely failing. The Palestinian Authority is in a state of, of paralysis because they they don't dare utter, open their mouth. And some Israeli generals say, wouldn't it be uh, wonderful if we just uh, give Gaza to the Palestinian Authority meaning, a, a, as a way of getting rid of, of Hamas in Gaza, which is a, an, another example of this uh, distorted colonial thinking, as if they could do something like this, as if... Uh, the Palestinian Authority could come into the ruins of the Gaza Strip and, and the two million people who've lost their homes and, and didn't have enough to, to eat and the, the, uh, don't have where to bury their dead. And they would be happy to accept those uh, Palestinian Authority officers who are now in the West Bank busy trying to suppress Palestinian demonstrations in solidarity with Gaza. Uh, including you, uh, arresting and torturing Palestinian uh, in the West Bank, that that is an absurd idea. So my answer to you is: Israeli society is hopeless simply because it's uh, uh, the only people who can liberate themselves are Palestinians. Israelis are not going to liberate them. But I don't agree with Gideon Levy at all that hope comes from the United States, because the United States has been very consistent. In the, in the idea that it doesn't support Israel because Israel is a Jewish state. It, it only supports Israel because it's an occupying state. Until 1967, when Israel conquered the West Bank and Gaza and, and some other territories from Syria and Egypt, um, then um, the, the, the United States didn't uh, choose Israel to be its largest recipient of military assistance in the world. And now no country in the world receives more than military financing than Israel because this, these are wep weapons that are showcased, U.S. weapons showcased against civilians. Israel projects imperial power in the Middle East. That's why Henry Kissinger famously said, for every tank we give to Israel for free, the neighbors of Israel buy four American tanks. That, that's how empire functions. Okay, now to be fair to Gideon, to be fair to Gideon, 
he was addressing the American people. He was saying the American people should demand a different U.S. policy towards Israel. The American people should demand the American government stop this one-sided support for Israel. And especially in this moment, while his speech was a few years ago, I'll paraphrase him, especially at this moment, the Americans should demand that this uh, a ceasefire and that this assault end. But Gideon, I don't think, had expectations the American government was going to change. Right. And, and the American people, I mean, I would, I would love to see a, a strong moral, ethical stance from the American people saying uh, that our government needs to stand on the right side of history and not support genocide. I would really love to, to see that. But at the very least, let's, uh, let's ask the American people to not allow their government to drag them into yet another war in the Middle East, which is something that also costs a lot to American citizens. And why should American soldiers die for Israel's folly? Why should American taxpayers pay so much money into those weapons that are given to Israel in order to kill civilians? Uh, why should the U.S. lose its ability, its influence in the world because it's the one vetoing ceasefires when the rest of the world is calling for, for humanity, uh, then th this is a, a severe loss to, uh, to power and, and also to the basic values, I think, of, of the United States. Well, I don't know about the basic values. I'm not so sure about the basic values if, you, if the basic values are defined by the American elites. But even from a geopolitical perspective, it's nuts. If your main problem in the Middle East is how the Saudis and others are inching a little closer towards China, uh, and then you pursue this policy, it, it makes no sense. Of course. Uh, I mean, the, the clearly this, this uh, onslaught on Ga Gaza is something that uh, completely changes the perspective on the war in Ukraine. And if the U.S. thought that the war in Ukraine would be their way to uh, crush Russia, and they, they can forget about it now. And, and especially the global south, that has already been very critical of the way that NATO handled the war in Ukraine and the, and the hypocrisy of uh, people, uh, uh, civilians need to be protected from a foreign occupier as long as those civilians happen to be white. Uh, this hypocrisy is now shouting to, to high heaven. So this is... Um, uh, that the global south is, is now speaking with a stronger voice and they do have the power to intervene and they do have the power to demand a ceasefire and to impose uh, sanctions on Israel and to make sure that the criminals will be charged in the International Criminal Court and then they can stop this genocide. Okay, thanks very much, Sir. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining us on the analysis. Please, again, as we head towards the uh, new year, if you're thinking about uh, donating at the end of the year. We are a 501c3 in the U.S., and uh, we only can keep doing this if people donate. So you can come to the website is the easiest thing, theanalysis.news, and click on the Donate button. And thanks again for joining us.